You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for March 2012. Today's episode is titled, Build According to the Pattern. The current popular philosophy for growing organizations is to build based on best practices. Best practices are behavior patterns that produce widely admired and valued results. Best practices are commonly gleaned through a worldview of rational empirical pragmatism. Rational means that human reasoning is employed. Empirical refers to data acquired using the five senses, and pragmatism means that which works or accomplishes the desired results. As a method for deducing God's ways, one can use rational empirical pragmatism if it is subordinated to a biblical worldview. Focus on developing your business practices based on biblical principles. Don't embrace practices gleaned by rational empirical pragmatism disconnected from God. Only adopt those practices that are profoundly consistent with God's ways as revealed by Scripture. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, A Biblical Operational Model. Let's, uh, let's begin in prayer. Well, Father, we do thank you for the privilege of studying and learning together tonight. We want to commit ourselves to you and this time to you and ask for your will to be done as we talk, as we share. Father, give us grace to hear what you want us to hear. And give us the courage and the perseverance and the strength to obey. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight I'm, my topic is uh, a biblical operational model um, and bifurcation. Uh, how many of you know what bifurcation means? Okay, what does it mean? Yes, it's, it's separating something. In this case, we're talking about separating spiritual reality from physical reality, which is a common view of most people. They view their, themselves as being Christians on Sunday, and the rest of the week, they may call themselves Christians, but really Christianity doesn't have a lot to do with how I live. So we want to talk a little bit about that, but mainly we want to focus on a biblical model for operations. How many of you are in business? Okay. I mean, you run a business, okay? So you're, you have to think about how you operate the business. And there are principles that you need to embrace to operate it. There are practices. So where do those come from? Experience. Maybe you took a course in a, a school somewhere, maybe a business course of some sort. Maybe... Uh, you talk, somebody taught you something like a dad. My dad taught me things, you know. But basically, it's just empirically derived mostly. So let me just throw some questions out here to us as we get started here. You know, how do we operate organizations? And I've got uh, three little diagrams up there. Can you see those? Well, you see naturalism, then you see deism, and you see scripture. Now, naturalism is the, the view that the only reality that exists is the physical, tangible world. There's no other reality. So that would be the worldview of what? The atheist. He doesn't believe there's any spiritual reality. Or if he does, he might be a little new agey. But it's just a, it's kind of a gimmicky thing. It's no real substance to it. Now, a deist, what's a deist? Anybody know what a deist is? Would you believe that if we, if we were to take a little test that you might be a deist? 
Huh? Let me let me illustrate this for you. How many of you guys are engaged in in the church here? I mean, you're really engaged at some level. Your leadership and you're involved. Okay, we've got a couple here. So when a problem pops up here in the church, what's the first thing that you do? Hmm? What do you do? You pray? Sometimes. Sometimes? Sometimes. Really? Well, you, you know, in our church, most of the time when a problem pops up, first thing we start doing is praying. Now, in the workplace, when a problem pops up, what do you do? What's the first thing you do? Hmm? Call a meeting. You call a meeting, you start brainstorming options, start looking for, you know, how can I solve the problem? So we have two different approaches to problems, given the jurisdiction that you're in. Now, why are they different? They're different because we view them differently. We have a view that, well, in this sphere here, this is where God is and where he's active, and so we've got to be spiritually minded here. So something pops up, we've got to start praying. But over here, this is the practical, tangible, physical world where problem comes up, it's up to us. We've got to go figure it out. Now, see, we default to that. That's a deistic view of reality where God exists, but he's disconnected from what I'm doing. I don't view him as involved or he doesn't care. He doesn't want to engage in that. So my thesis is that most people in the professing Christian world function in the workplace like deists. Is that too harsh? Can you handle that? I mean, sometimes people kind of get a little freaked out over that, but you just got to be honest about reality. And then the third worldview that's up here is, is Scripture, where the Scripture is the foundation of everything that you do. The starting point for all of life is the Word of God. And let me give you an example. Suppose that you want to you want to get married. What should be the starting point? You should start with the Word of God. What's the Word of God say about marriage? And how do I find my mate? And what is marriage all about? What's the purpose of marriage? That starts by understanding the Word. What about you, you feel like you want to be involved in starting a church. Then you start with the Word of God, don't you? What's the Word of God say about what a church is? What's the purpose of a church? How should a church you know, conduct itself? How should it be led? What, how would we define success? All these things come from Scripture. Now, how about public policy? That's a tough one today because we're in this, got this mentality going on that we can't bring Christ and Scripture into public policy. But yet Scripture says that God created everything and even created all authority. Just read Romans 13. And it says that the purpose of government is to do you good. Good is a divine attribute. It means to do things that would promote the purposes of God, the values of God, the character and nature of God in the culture. So you see, the Bible's the starting point for public policy. Now how about work? Is it true of work? Well, if God created everything, do you agree he created everything? Is there anything that he didn't create? Then he created all the rules, didn't he? How everything works? All the laws of 
how we manage and how we sell and how we market, how we advertise, how we operate our businesses, how we hire, how, how we fire. All these things come back to what does Scripture have to say? See, that's a true biblical worldview. That's a holistic biblical worldview when you're thinking at that level. The challenge for all of us is most of us don't think at that level. We, we might ask, are there rules for organizational behavior? And most of us say, yeah, there are some rules. And how did you, where, where are these rules? Well, I kind of made them up myself or I learned them along the way. But the reality is there's only two sources of the rules. Either they come from man or God. One of the two. Either man made them or God made them. And if God made the rules, are organizations expected to submit? Do I have to obey what God says? Well, if you're living in his universe, would you expect that maybe you need to obey what he says? How many of you have a swimming pool in your, in your backyard? Who's got a swimming pool? I've got a couple people. All right, suppose that I want to come over and, and swim in your swimming pool. And can I just go come swim in your swimming pool and do whatever I want to do? No. There's some rules there. The owner of the pool is going to set the rules. These are the rules. You come to my swimming pool. This is the way you're going to do it. If you don't do it, you won't get to play in the pool. Well, we're in God's universe. He made the rules. So if we don't follow his rules, why would we think that there would be blessing? Why do we think that we would find favor and success? And I think the scriptures are give us ample testimony that you won't find favor and success. We'll have some other questions here. Is God actively engaged with organizations? That's the question of deism. Is God standing off just watching, or is he actually engaged? If I have a business problem, can I pray to God and expect him to interact with me and guide me and direct me? Well, you can read texts like Isaiah 46, where it talks about, was so clearly, that God has a plan and purpose that he's executing and nothing's going to thwart it. It's Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11, if you're interested. And he says, he's so particular and specific that he has made you to do a specific thing in his plan. And you, and you, and you, because everyone has a place. God doesn't just, he's not just some random thing. This whole theory of evolution that we've gotten into, which has led us to think that things are random, this is not biblical thinking. Just an example of this, look at uh, Proverbs 16, verse 32, 33. Rather. The text says, the lot is cast into lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, wait a minute. Casting lots, we view that as a random event. Kind of like flipping a coin. Isn't that a random event to most of us? But see, Scripture says that's not random to God. It's random to us. But God is on a different level from us. His thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. So to illustrate how this is not a random event to God and how people can view it as a way that God reveals his will, consider Acts chapter 1. This is a situation where Jesus has ascended and the disciples, there are 11 of them because one of them now has committed suicide because he was the betrayer. And the disciples figure, we need a 12th disciple. So we've got a bunch of people that have been following with us we need to pick one so they get it down to two people and they said we'll cast lots 
And as they cast lots, they prayed and said, Lord, would you reveal your will through the casting of lots and tell us who you've chosen to be the twelfth disciple? You see, they had a sense about God speaking through what looked like a random event. So, is that, I mean, is that a shocking thing that we would think that way? When you see how God works, you realize he is a God who is ultimately in control of his universe. He is accomplishing his purpose. Nothing will thwart him. Therefore, everything is a divine setup. It doesn't matter what's going on. And I know this can be hard because some of you may have difficult situations, serious illnesses, a lot of pain, maybe suffering, a lot of perplexing things. You know, all those things can plague us, but the reality is God is still in control of his universe and he's still doing good things. You see, God did not consider it a bad thing for Jesus to die. That looked pretty bad to us. Have you, have you all seen the passion of the Christ? I mean, that was, that was so hard to watch. I mean, that, was, oh, that just tore me up to watch that thing. But you know something? God was pleased. Not in a masochistic sense, but in a sense that he, his purposes were being carried out. And what looked like to be a terrible, horrible, horrific, brutal, cruel, unjust thing was the greatest thing that ever happened. It paved the way for you and I to know Jesus Christ as Savior. So that's how our God works. It's a mysterious thing in many ways. So the Bible does speak authoritative about the rules. At least that's my thesis. And that's how I'm going to proceed tonight with that thesis. And your answer to these questions that I've posed here will depend upon your worldview. And I've just threw out three different worldviews for you. Now I want to talk about it from a little different angle. I want to talk about the bifurcation quickly. And then we're going to get into the actual operational model. Now, I want to just start out by pointing out that there are five jurisdictions that exist in which God has delegated authority. Five jurisdictions. The first jurisdiction, the primary jurisdiction, is the church. Now, I'm not talking about the local church. I'm talking about the universal church, which is the repository of wisdom and knowledge, specifically truth. Notice this text out of 1 Timothy 3. It says, referring to you, uh, Paul is talking to Timothy, his spiritual son, you will know how you ought to conduct yourself in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Now, it does not matter what you do, you need truth. Do you agree? You need to know truth. And you may have even said that today, I need to know the truth. Whatever it is that's going on, I need truth. Well, the church is the pillar, the foundation, the very basis of truth. It's the repository of the knowledge of God that we have in Christ Jesus, mainly revealed through the Word of God. Now, you know you have three sources of revelation. They're at the foundation of your life. Did I hold up three fingers? Good. As long as I didn't hold up four fingers and say three. First one is general revelation. Now, what's general revelation? It's a revelation in creation. By the grace of God, he, he enables man, even those that are rebellion, rebelling against him, to learn things about how his creation works by living in the creation. The second revelation is special revelation. What is that? That's the Word of God, the written Word of God, the Bible. 
The third revelation is specific revelation. The Word of God is special. This is specific. Now, what's specific? Well, specific revelation is when the Holy Spirit gives you specific direction in a specific situation at a specific time. A case in point would be David when he was fighting the Philistines. And he asked the Lord, he said, Lord, what do do I do? And the Lord said, now, David, you're going to do it differently this time. Last time, you did a frontal attack. This time, I want you to go around and hide in these trees. And I want you to wait until the tops of the trees begin to move. And when when that happens, charge. You go ahead. That was specific direction from God to David for a specific situation at a specific time. So we have a God who reveals himself to us in three different ways. And so the church is the repository of the revelation. The way that we begin to understand this revelation is by coming to Christ as revealed to us through the church. And we could talk about church history and how how God has progressively revealed himself through church history. These, this is a very important aspect of learning and understanding the truth of God, is to see what God has done progressively. But I want to go ahead to the other spheres of authority. Basically, the other four spheres are the individual, the family, work, and government. So these are your five spheres of authority. Now, some of you may be familiar with the Seven Mountains teaching. You've heard of that teaching, which that that's... Um, I think it's a little bit um, misguided because it, they're talking about spheres of influence. We were put here, according to Genesis 1.26, not to influence, but to rule. That's what Genesis 1.26 says, that we have been made in the image of God so that we can rule his physical creation. Man is the pinnacle of God's created order, and we have been charged to bring dominion and to multiply on this planet, to rule this planet. And so we are to be here working under his authority to do his will. We should be taking his authority into all these jurisdictions. Now, what I've shown up here, you'll notice that these five words, there are no connecting lines. Do you see that? Okay, this is what I call full dualism. This is when the the truth of the word of God that's embodied by the church of Jesus Christ is irrelevant to all areas of life. Now you might say, well, where is that? Well, all you got to do is go down to Baylor University, and you will see an example of it. There, the former president, prior to this last president, the one that was back in the late 90s, um, his name was Reynolds, he was a model of a full dualist. He was so committed to his dualism, he would say, you may not share your personal faith with anyone, you may not go into the cafeteria and bow your head and pray before a meal. You see, he was, to him, whatever you believe is totally private to you, had nothing to do with anything else. Now that may seem extreme to you, but you need to be aware those people are out there and they're growing. That is a growing belief today. So that's full dualism. The second aspect of dualism is what I call partial dualism. And by the way, this is all covered in my book if you're interested in more details. Partial dualism basically says, okay, Christianity, Christ, the Bible, those things are relevant to me personally. 
and relevant to my family. But outside of that, not relevant. So we, we articulate this by saying separation of work and church. Separation of church and state. Those are terms that we use today. How many of you have been in a business context where if you, if you sought to pray about something, you were rebuffed? Has anybody had that? So you've had that? Uh, you're, in, you're here in East Texas where you're kind of in the Bible Belt, so it's probably pretty easy to pray and even talk about Scripture in a, in a work context. There are a lot of places in the world you cannot do that. that you, it, it's not acceptable. You bring it up, you will get rebuffed. and You will get corrected. You may lose your job. So partial dualism is very much a very, very popular position today. Now, the least popular position... And I would say full dualism is probably not highly popular, but it's great in strength. Partial dualism is very popular. The least popular is the holistic view. And a holistic view, now you have the church as the pillar and ground of truth, defining reality, defining the principles and practices and the values and the philosophies that every jurisdiction needs to do whatever, whatever that jurisdiction is trying to do. You see, it doesn't matter what you do if you're at work, you need philosophy, values, principles, and practices. What are they? Where do they come from? Do they come from men or God? If they come from God, the church is the repository for that to come through. If you're in public policy, you need philosophy, values, principles, and practices to do whatever it is you're trying to do. Where does it come from? Men or God? If it's men, we can make up our own rules. If it's God, God defines the rules. So we've got to get clear what our view is. Are we dualistic or are we holistic? Hopefully you guys here are holistic. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present to you tonight uh, what I believe is a holistic approach to operational management. Now, before I jump into this, and my goodness, where time is going blast so quickly, I'm not going to be able to do this for you thoroughly. So let me just, just point out something to you. This is Isaiah 28, verses 23 through 29. Now, in this text, it's a very interesting text. It, it supports the idea that God makes the rules for business. And the way that it expresses it is Isaiah is talking about how God made the rules for farming. Not only did he make the rules for farming, he instructs the farmer on how to farm. Now, any of you kind of surprised with that? Anybody being honest? Because most of us were brutally honest... We don't think of farming as much, what's God got to do with farming? Well, God made farming. He made the practice of farming. He made the plants. He made the soils. He made the chemistry of how it all works. And he even gets down on the level of he instructs the farmer in how to do it. So that's what this text is all about. I invite you to take a look at it at your leisure. My conclusion here from this is that if God makes the rules of farming, does it not follow that he makes the rules for management? Sales, marketing, operations, accounting, etc. Indeed, he makes all the rules to define and govern organizational behavior. It does not matter what you're in, what you're engaged with. God makes the rules for it. Now, let's talk about the risk of disobedience. Now, many of us are clueless about the fact that God makes these rules. We just thought, well, gee, I... If I want to learn about selling, I go take a sales course, or I read a sales book. Well, 
the value of that is only to the degree that it lines up with God. If they're teaching you biblical truth, then it has value. But if they're just teaching you the ways of men, you're probably going to be deceived and misled. So this is a text here in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. And I just, I'm going to quickly tell you what it says, and I'm going to go to the punchline. Jesus and his disciples are walking along, and the Pharisees decide now is the time to criticize them because they're not following the traditions of the elders. Specifically, they're not washing their hands to be ceremonially clean. Now, there's nothing wrong with washing hands. But you see, what they've revealed is that their worldview is that the tradition of the elders trumps the Scripture. Jesus objects to that. And so he has a little dialogue with them on that. And then his disciples are trying to understand it. What what is all this about? I mean, what's going on here? And Jesus says, you need to understand something. And this is the punchline here, what I've got to underline. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. He's talking about men who've made up their own rules about reality. And he then uses a marketplace metaphor to illustrate his point. He says, look, God didn't make the rules that they're practicing. He has different rules, and what they've done is use man-made rules, and they have used those to trump God's rules. That is out of order. So when you do that, that's like you planting something you've you've not been authorized to plant, and God's going to yank it out of the ground. It will not stand. That's the risk of following man-made rules that are not lined up with God's rules. So I just want to point this out to you. I wish I had time to exegete this text, because this to me is, when I saw this, it was like, oh, I dropped to my knees. I thought, my goodness. I mean, all the things I've studied over the years, and by the vast majority have been man's way of thinking. They have not been rooted on Christ. So it's, it's been a profound reality for me to, to go back and say, okay, I need to redefine what I think truth is in business based on Christ. Wouldn't that be a pretty big project? To go and evaluate everything that you think is true and say, okay, is this indeed a biblical truth or is this just man's rules? There's a serious risk when we don't seek the Lord for truth and we think we can make it up ourselves. Now, the practice for fallen man, and I'm presuming you understand by that, that that we are all, by nature, sinners. We are in a fallen state that is relative to God. We're not acceptable. And the only way we can become acceptable is through Christ. So the default for fallen man is to make up rules. That is, best practices, pragmatically discerned, which may or may not be biblical. How many of you have heard the term best practices? Yeah. That's a very common term. About uh, three or four months ago, I got a, an, uh, an email from a lady who had been with a major company in the area. And she left the company, and she wanted to now associate with a consulting practice. So she, for some reason, she picked me and sends me this email. And she extols herself about how she has these, has these great best practices that she's developed you know, from studying the pundits and from her experience and all this kind of stuff. So I wrote her back. Uh, first thing I said to her is, dear so-and-so, thank you for the communication. 
uh, please understand that I do not operate based on traditional best practices. Now, that right there would probably send most people in a tailspin. What? How could you not? I mean, there's nothing else. Then I said, if you are interested in how I operate, read my website. Read the first page. It tells you how I operate. And if you're interested in talking, call me. Well, she never called me. So I think that's, uh, that's a pretty good sign of where she is. So what I try to do is I try to bring a biblical perspective to everything I do. And, for example, uh, these are some areas where I do training and teaching in. Management, sales, marketing, human resources, finance, success, money. You ever thought about money from God's perspective? You know what money is? Anybody know what money is? Real simple. It's a tool to do the will of God. That's all money is. If you see it anything more than that, you're worshiping money. Now that turns most people on their ears. Let me ask you this. Do you think that you want to make money so you can go and spend it on your pleasures? Y'all are real scared to answer, I can tell. Yeah, most people do. Yeah, they want a nice house and a nice car and a nice country club and vacations and all the toys and everything. Yeah, yeah, that's what I want, money. You know what it says in James chapter 4? If that's your perspective, if you are seeking money to spend it on your own pleasures, you know what it says? You are a spiritual adulterer and an enemy of God. Whoa, man, that's pretty harsh. Well, it may seem harsh to you because your view of money is not correct. You see, when we get the right view of money, it changes how we work. It changes why we work. It changes how we use resources. It changes our decisions. It changes our mind. It changes our actions. So I spend, I've got, by the way, I've got four seminars on money, if you're interested. Uh, and I've got one coming up in about a month on the 28th of October in Dallas. The title of it is Organizational Finance. I go in that seminar. I'm going to give you a biblical view of how to financially run an organization. First, how to form, how to put together capital to do the organization. Then how to operate the organization financially. And finally, transactional finance. So those are the things I'll be covered. You may have had those things in your MBA courses or business courses. You probably have not seen it from a biblical perspective. So if you want to come, please sign up for that. It's on my website, and uh, I invite you to participate. Also, it's going to be a webinar version of that in November. So these are just examples of topics that you need to know to be successful in business, and you need to know them from a biblical perspective. So what I do... My focus of my business practice is bringing you a biblically-based approach to best practices. I don't object to best practices as long as you qualify it with the term biblical best practices. That's what I'm after. You know, some practice that we may regard as, as good, it, if it's biblical, I'm all over it. If it's not, I want to throw it out. For example, one of the best practices today is to... Go make as much money as, as fast as you can. 
That's the best practice. A lot of people think that's what i got to do. i got to go out and find a job, make as much money as I can, as fast as I can, so I can retire as soon as I can. Now, that is not a biblical best practice. None of that is biblical. And we've got to learn what is a biblical approach to living life. So what I want to do with the rest of our time, I just have a few minutes left, so I'm not going to be able to do this as thoroughly as I would like, so I'm going to apologize to you for that. But I want to give you a flavor for what I believe is a biblical operational model. It's called the Beyond Babel model. It's the model that's up here. It's the model that's expressed in my book. And I'm sorry the aspect ratio is kind of compressing it, making it look kind of funny. But you'll see there's five elements to the model. You see one, two, three, four, five going up? See that? Okay. Element number, and I'm going to go through these very quickly, but I'm going to first tell you what they are, and then I'll go through them with you. Number one is the foundation of the model is biblical worldview. Whatever you're doing today in business, you have a worldview that drives your actions. It's driving your thinking. It's driving your decisions. It's driving your results. What I'm offering to you in the Beyond Babel model is a biblical worldview. That is the only worldview that will lead to alignment with the will and ways of God. And if you're in God's universe, you have to play by His rules, so He has a will and He has ways. So our job is to discern those wills, His will and His ways. So a biblical worldview is the only thing that will help you do that. The second element is equally yoked leaders. If you don't have equally yoked leaders, you will not have unity, you will not have clarity of direction, you will not have focus. You will be scattered, you will have lots of conflict. The third element is the strategic plan. God is very strategic. He is very intentional. He is driving his universe and his meta-narrative to a conclusion. You know what the term meta-narrative means? You heard the term meta-narrative? Theologians use the term. It's referring to God's overarching plan and purpose. He has an overarching plan in his universe. Our purpose fits into his plan. We have bit parts to play in his plan. And so our job is to discern what is he doing, what has he called us to do as part of his plan. And that includes how organizations fit in, what organizations are called to do. You see, everything God does has intent and purpose. So strategic planning is all about discerning the will of God for yourself and for your organizations. And I'm going to take you to a text in a minute and show you that. And then step four is executional excellence. If you go to the bookstore, and I realize their bookstores are becoming non-existent today. If you go to Amazon and you start looking for business books, mostly you will get books on how-to how to do this, how to do that, how to market, how to sell, how to manage, you know, how to hire, how to fire, how to promote, how to promote your career, whatever, all these how-tos. Well, those are all executional-type techniques. So that is part of the model. You have to be able to execute, and I give you seven keys of executional excellence there. And finally, the fifth element is customer validation. And this is all about the reality that nobody sees reality clearly by themselves. And just a simple illustration of this, who in this room can you not see? You can see everybody in this room except one person. Now, who is that one person you can't see? Huh? Pardon? No, not the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about a physical person. Yourself. You can't see yourself. See? I mean, I can see everybody in this room except me. 
Now, why is that a reality in God's universe? Why did he make it that way? That makes me dependent upon you to help me understand what's going on with me. That makes you dependent on other people to help you understand what God's doing with you. Well, that's the validation part. You, you may think that you have it together. You may think you know what God wants you to do, but you need to remember you see through a glass darkly. We're like the guy with the speck in the beam. And Jesus says, why is it that you, you can see that speck in Chris's eye, but you can't see that beam sticking out of your own eye? Why is that? Because that's the way God's universe is made. I can't live life well by myself. I can't presume that I see everything I need to see by myself. I need you to help me. And when I grab a hold of that reality and walk in that truth, then I discern the will of God better. I line up with him better. So that's the customer validation aspect. So let me just uh, walk you through these five steps with a little more detail here as we kind of draw to some conclusion here. Your worldview defines your purpose, preparation, and success. These are just three examples. It defines everything. But I just picked three things here that your worldview would define as a point of illustration. So, for example, some common views are the purpose for work is to make money. That's how most people view work. The preparation for work, most people think, is secular training. Success at work is retirement with financial security. So those are very common ideas that, that most people have. You, you, if you were brutally honest, you probably would agree with a lot of these ideas. But the scriptures give us different ideas. Because scripture does not give us man's rules, it gives us God's rules. So let me give you an example. For example, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 gives us the purpose for which we have been made, the purpose for life. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Now we all know that. I grew up Baptist, I heard gazillions of sermons on this, but it stopped right there. Or if it went on, it wasn't profound what happened next, but Paul is very profound. Because now he tells you why you were saved. For we are God's workmanship. Each one of us has been individually, specifically, intentionally, strategically created by God to do good works. And this word work here is the Greek word ergon. It's the common word in the Greek language to refer to any kind of work. So, Jonah, what, is your name Jonah? 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 What, what work do you do? You're a teacher. That's your ergon. Chris, what do you do? Chiropractor, that's your air gun. Brian, what do you do? Sales. Okay, that's your air gun. Travis, what do you do? Huh? Sales, that's your air gun. What do you do? IT. IT, it's your air gun. Everybody's got air gun. Work assignment that God has created them to do. And you see, God is strategic about it. He created you specifically to do it. And notice how it ends here. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, you're a teacher. Do you prepare lesson plans in advance? Yes, you do them in advance. That means when I walk into the classroom, there's a plan, and I'm going to execute the plan. Well, that's the way God works. When you came into this world, and your mama spanked you on the bottom, or the doctor spanked you on the bottom, and you began to cry, guess what? It's all according to a plan. You arrived on time. 
to do what God made you to do. Now the job is to go discern it and do it. So this is a biblical view of purpose. It's, it's a view that largely is not understood and appreciated in Christianity today. And the world would say, well, gee, I mean, work's just about money. No, work is a place where I do the will of God. I fulfill my destiny. That's one of the places that I do it. Then you have preparation. You see, most of us think the key to preparing for life is I've got to go take the right courses. I've got to get the right degrees, the right credentials. And that's what we're taught. You know, you go in for an interview, well, what, what credentials do you have? You know, are you a CPA? Do you have an MBA? You know, have you had uh, some computer courses? Or if you, do you know anything about Six Sigma? Whatever it is. If you, what credentials do you have? That's how the world looks at it. But see, the scripture says something different. It says, all scripture, and by the way, when Paul wrote this to Timothy, what was his scripture? Huh? The Old Testament was his scripture. All scripture is God-breathed, in other words, inspired, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good ergon. If you want to be a trip equipped for the ergon that you've been called to do, it starts with Jesus Christ as revealed in the Word of God. That's the biblical view of preparation. I want to encourage you as a hiring practice. If you hire people, do not hire anybody that is not bending the knee to the Word of God. If they're not bending the knee to the Word of God, then they're in rebellion against the, the principles that God made this universe to operate by. And that will not go well for them or for you. Finally, success. Success today is all about money. How many of you think Bill Gates is a success? You can be honest, okay? How about Carlos Slim? Carlos Slim a success? You know who Carlos Slim is? Really? Anybody know who Carlos Slim is? He's the richest man in the world. Who is he? Mexican telecom entrepreneur, he's worth $73 billion last time I read about him. That was earlier this year. He's the richest, Gates is a distant second. He's $20 billion behind him. All right, is Carlos Slim a success? Hmm? Yeah, because we say that because he has money. Now, Jesus died broke. Was he a success? Wait a minute, he didn't have any money. You said Carlos Slim was a success because he had money. Jesus died broke and he had no money. So how could Jesus be a success? Huh? He did. So maybe if we take that definition and ask, is Carlos Slim a success? We don't know, do we? Because we don't know what his success, what his purpose is. Just because he has money does not mean he's successful. Look what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 4. I have brought you glory on earth, referring to the Father, he's speaking to the Father, by completing the work, the ergon, you gave me to do. Oh, really? You mean success is not denominated in dollars? It's not how many, how many, how many toys I have? 
how many cars I have, how many homes I have. It's not even how much, how influential I am. Do you notice there weren't very many people around Jesus when he died? Do you notice that? His disciples are gone. Got a few women. But he died pretty much alone. Nobody wanted to listen to him. It's not influence. It's not even fame. Success is obedience. Doing the ergon that you have been given by God to do in accordance to his plan. That's what success is. That's true individually. It's true corporately. Okay, let's talk about equally yoked leadership teams. And, gosh, sorry about that. There's not an easy way to go back. So I have to bail out and start over. So bear with me just a moment, and we'll get this going again. I love the iPad, but it has limitations. Okay, uh, this is a text that, again, I don't have time to exegete this out of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It talks about not being unequally yoked. And I've got a little picture there for you of a, an oxen and a donkey. If you tried to plow a field with that, what do you think would happen? Yep. You would probably just go in circles. You know, maybe just kind of gradually go in circles down the field because one of them's clearly going to be stronger than the other. You're not going to be able to plow a straight field. And God's rule of farming is that you plow a straight line. He made up the rules. So he said, okay, if you're going to follow my rules of farming, you do it my way and you have to be equally yoked. So this is the text on equal yoking. It's a text that's normally misunderstood because most people, when they read it, they, they limit the application to what? Marriage. There's nothing in the context that's talking about marriage. Nothing. Just read it. It's not, it's not in any way qualifying. There's, there's no marriage qualifier on here. It is a general principle he's given us about his reality. That being equally yoked is the way you efficiently do things. So, given that reality, we go on to, the, to what I consider to be a great principle to use to help you with equal yoking. This is the C4 principle that I teach in the, in the Strategic Life Alignment Seminar. This principle is a biblical principle. I'm gonna, in the seminar, I show you in Scripture where it comes from, and I help you understand how to apply it. For example, the, the principle is simply this. It is calling, character, capability, commissioning. Calling is the passion that God has put in your heart. Now, I'm not talking about your fleshly desires. I'm talking about the genuine passion that God has planted in you. It's there. You may not know what it is. You may have never got a glimpse of it. But deep inside of you is a passion to do something that he wants you to do. What a gift that he gives us that passion. And in the seminar, I'm going to give you 21 clues as to how to find that passion. Was that worth knowing? 21 clues? I think it's worth knowing. It helped me a lot. I hope it would help you. The other thing is character. Character is not about being a character. It's about a displaying godly character. So if you don't grow up in Christ, you cannot have the character you need to support your destiny. Third one is capability. This is the skill and ability that God has given you. What is it that you have? What has God put into your, your life? And as you begin to develop that, you begin to get clues. 
for your, about your destiny. Finally, commissioning is probably the weakest element for us because we live in a culture that's very independent. We don't really have a good sense of how to live under authority, particularly under godly authority. Either natural parents, spiritual parents, employers, teachers, church leaders, all of these are authority figures that God has put into your life. And Romans 13 says that all authority is divinely ordained. So that authority that you may not like or may not want to be under, guess what? God puts you there underneath that authority to do something in you that lines you up with his purposes. So commissioning is what about what authority figures see in you and how they call it out. So these four elements come together, and I've just got a little circle in the middle. of white circles kind of represents the bullseye. That's the target. When you find that, then you're on track to do what God has called you to do. So what you want, what, what you want to be doing in working in an organization is you want to be working with other people that are, doing, are, do, are lining up with their purpose too. So what do you have C4 to do? What do you have C4 to do? What do you have C4 to do? If we're called to work together, then we want to be working together arm in arm, each of us doing the C4 that we have to do. Now we can be equally yoked. Now we can pull together and we can get the plow going down the field like it's supposed to go and accomplish what God wants to do through that organization. Okay, I've got to press on here. Strategic planning. I promised you I was going to show you in Scripture how strategic planning is tied to the will of God. So let's read this text together. It says, now, listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Now, what is that? What's that sound like to you guys? Sound like a business plan, doesn't it? I mean, I've written scores of business plans over my business career. I've been doing consulting since 1987. And I don't know how many business plans I've written, but I guarantee you, every one of them said we're going to make a bunch of money. That's always the case. Well, we can make a bunch of money. So this is, what, this is what he's saying. Today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this city or that city. We're going to spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Well, then James says this. Why? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. Instead, you ought to say. Here's what you ought to say. If... It is the Lord's will. We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. In other words, your arrogance about what you're going to do is all about pride. And what scriptures say about the proud? God opposes the proud. By the way, that text, which it's mentioned here, and it's also mentioned in 1 Peter 5, that text is written to professing Christians. Don't dismiss it as well, he's talking about the unsaved. No, he isn't. He's talking about us. So as it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. My contention is this. As I look back on my own business career, I realize that I help clients make plans that were sin. It's one of those points of repentance. Because I realized we really didn't seek the will of God. We really didn't bathe this in prayer. We didn't commit it to the Lord. We didn't really, we weren't driven by alignment and obedience. We were driven by money. Money is never the reason to do something. 
The reason you do something is because you've been called and directed by the Father to do it. That's the only valid reason biblically to do anything. So strategic plans have got to be discerning what God wants to do for the organization. Now, God is such an incredibly ingenious, an intentional, strategic, and purposeful God that he accomplishes multiple purposes at one time. Can you believe that? Well, just take a look at this. You have an individual purpose that God has created for you to do. We saw that in Ephesians 2.10. In this text here in James 4, we see that God also has a purpose for organizations. You'll notice it says, you know, he's talking about the first line there. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this city or that city. It's plural. It's not I, it's we. You see, that, you see an organization is two or more people who have come, come together to accomplish a mission. So he's talking about organizational planning here. So he's saying organizations have purpose. It's the lineup with the will of God. Individually, Ephesians 2.10 says, I have an individual purpose to line up with the will of God. So how do these fit together? Well, God is a God of congruence. You know what congruence means? Where accomplishing one thing leads to accomplishing another. They line up. You see, if you want to be successful operating an organization... You need the right people, the people that are called to be there, doing what they have C4 to do, and that facilitates what the organization is called to do, which then facilitates the meta-narrative that God is engaged in. That's how intentional and strategic God is. I hope you're hearing this. I mean, this is a, this is a big shift for both of us. Most of us have no concept that God would work with that level of detail, that level of intentionality. But I, I propose these two texts suggest that is the reality in which he works. Executional excellence. Two texts here. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, and this is a, probably a poor translation of that word because it's our Greek word, ergon again. Do it all... In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is Colossians 3.17. What he's saying here is it doesn't matter what you're doing. When you speak, when you act to do the ergon you've been assigned to do, do it with such integrity, with such excellence, with such thoroughness, that you could put on there the stamp, done in the name of the Lord Jesus. In fact, a few years ago, I got my clients a Christmas present. It was a stamp. And the stamp said, this work performed in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now think about that. Suppose that stamp's on your desk. Every phone call, you can say, boom, that phone call was in the name of the Lord Jesus. Every unhappy customer that you're dealing with and how you deal with it, how you approach it, this is done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Every, every product or service you deliver... This is done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Every strategic plan, this is done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Every letter, every email, every conversation, every thought, every action is done in the name of the Lord Jesus. You think that might be excellent? Sometimes I'd love to see some of Jesus' carpentry work. You know, he spent 18 years or thereabouts as a carpenter. You know, have you ever noticed that Jesus lived in Nazareth? You know that? 
Do you know Nazareth is about 30 miles from the Sea of Galilee? Now, did you notice when he calls disciples, did you notice how as soon as he called them, they dropped everything and followed him? Now, why would they do that? Do you think that maybe they had seen some of his work? Maybe they'd experienced some of his carpentry work. Maybe he actually built their boats or repaired their boats. And so they already knew through his work who this man was and what he stood for. Is that possible? Did you know Noah was called a preacher of righteousness? Look it up. Second Peter chapter 2. He's called a preacher of righteousness. Noah was a farmer. Look that up. Genesis chapter 8 says that. The only thing Noah did, as far as we have from Scripture, is he obeyed God. He didn't have a pulpit. He didn't have a church. He didn't do crusades. He didn't travel the world. He didn't write books. He simply obeyed God. And by obeying God, he was called a preacher of righteousness. You see the picture here? That coming across to you? It's such a foreign thought to us because we have a paradigm of Christianity that many times does not relate to truth, the truth that's in the Word of God.